team. And uh, boy, I tell you, every time I have uh, preached from this passage of Scripture, and I think it's probably every preacher's, um, uh, I, I think their temptation is to read the entire chapter. But we'll not do that today for sake of time. Uh, but this is the story of David and Goliath. And uh, I think most of us are familiar with it. Uh, if not, hopefully by the end of the message, you'll know more than you actually have ever known. But we want to begin down in, uh, in chapter 17. We want to begin down in verse 20. In verse 20. Now, the importance of uh, the whole story, that just the, the basics of the context is the Philistines, which are essentially the arch enemy of Israel, uh, is in battle. And they've set themselves uh, to battle, the Bible says, in array against the armies of Israel. They're in uh, two mountains. The Valley of Elah is below them. Some of us that have been to Israel have been not only on that mountain where they camp, but also down in the valley. And uh, there is a brook that still runs through there, but uh, they're, they're getting ready to fight. Everybody's similar with the story. Goliath has come out and uh, David doesn't know it yet. He's never met Goliath, never even heard of Goliath. He, and he's, he's not even allowed to go to the war. And uh, now he's going to go by obeying his father, and he's going to find himself in a situation that he wasn't planning on. How many of you have ever found yourself in a situation that you didn't plan on? All right. So we can associate with the story a little bit. Uh, something happens on the spur of the moment you weren't expecting. And all of a sudden you have a choice to make. It's a giant. It's keeping you from progress. And if you don't defeat that giant in your life, you're never going to make the progress that God has for your life. So 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 20, we're going to pick it up there and read several verses, and then we're going to go back through and take some of these verses and try to apply them to our life. 1 Samuel 17 verse 20, the Bible says, And David arose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper, and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore. What's the next word? What's the word? Afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man, that is, this man that has come up? Surely to defy the army as he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. What does that mean? No taxes. What a day that would be. Free in Israel. Verse 26. And David spake to the men that stood by him saying, what shall be done to the man that killeth the Philistine and taketh away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. Verse 28, And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why comest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride. By the way, look up here. Can anybody really ever know what's in the heart of another individual? There's only one person that knows what's in the heart. His name is God. But Eliab was sure. No, David, I know you. The more I study David's life, the more I realize how ignorant Eliab really was about his, about his brother's life. He had no idea who David was. Because if he knew David the way God knew David, he would know that David had a heart for God's heart. Notice what the phrase is. Again, Eliab, the eldest brother, heard him speak uh, at the end. He says, I know thy pride, the second half of verse 28, and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David looked at him and said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. What does that mean? He asked him, is there not a cause? And the people answered him again after the former manner. They said, yeah, here's what you need to know. Whoever takes this giant out is going to get paid. It's going to be a holy payday. They're going to be debt free. So David is talking about the honor of God. Everybody else wants to talk about something else. You ever been in that situation? Where you want to talk about spiritual things and other people don't want to talk about spiritual things? When the words, verse 31, were heard, which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul. And Saul sent for him. 
Bible says in verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with a Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For thou art but a youth and he a man of war from his youth. And David said to Saul, thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went after them and smote him and David and delivered delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. By the way, look up here. It's almost like he's saying, have you ever done that? I don't know about you, but I've got experience in fighting. In fact, I've fought a lion and a bear. Saul, Saul, King Saul, head and shoulders about every, above everybody else. You know, the guy that said, man, if there's ever been a king in Israel, that's the guy. Have you done that? That's what I've done. Notice this, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord hath delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear. He will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. So what does Saul say? Saul said unto David, go, and the Lord be with thee. Heavenly Father, we come again this morning, and we want to say thank you for the holy word of God. Lord, we're grateful to have not a book, but the book of books today. And God, as we read it, we pray that you would use it and that it would have free course in our midst. We ask that your Holy Spirit would have liberty here today, God. And I yield myself to you again. I ask that you'd help me to get out of your way, that you'd fill me with your spirit, use me for your glory. I have one desire that is to be used of you as your mouthpiece, to please you in all things and to glorify and honor the name of Christ as we lift up your word. As we do that, Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith, that you would help our unbelief. I pray that if there's one here this morning under the sound of my voice, that it's not 100% sure if they died today that they'd be in heaven. My prayer is according to your will, that you would have no men to, be per- to perish, that you would have all to come to repentance. Pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. For every believer in this room, I pray that you would encourage them through the word of God. Encourage them with who you are as our God, the mighty God, the covenant God of Israel the God who created all things, who by him all things consist. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of David Goliath is really world-renowned. I suppose you could argue it's one of the most popular stories in all of Scripture, and it probably means something a little differently to everybody. In the sports world, it's typically a story of an underdog, normally someone with less experience facing off against someone who has been a champion for some time. I put together a little collage to kind of jog your memory this morning. Let's go to the first picture there, Parker. Um, if you've ever heard of the story of David and Goliath in the sports world, that kind of is the epitome of it, right? Uh, that's Aaron Judge, Yankee slugger on the left, and Jose Altuve was the little bitty second baseman for the Astros. You look at that and you go, wow, that's like David and Goliath, right? Go to the next slide. Um, this one kind of is a little more uh, a little more exaggerated. That is literally a guy... Uh, who is probably twice the size of his defender, right? So you, you look at this and you get it. This is kind of a normal saying. Go to the next one. Um, David versus Goliath. There's manly, there's heroic, then there's just plain dumb, right? If you're going to go against an Abrams take. So you get it. This is something that is, no, you can watch ESPN on a yearly basis and more than one time, sometime during the telecast, they're going to talk about David versus Goliath. There's a, an expectation of a champion that's of greater value or greater uh, talent. And then there's the underdog. Uh, when, the, when the Patriots versus the Giants in the Super Bowl, that was the David versus Goliath. And what happened? The Giants beat the Patriots with the head catch and, uh, and, and all of that happened, right? So we understand the story. And really, if you really think about it, it's quite amazing that the most of the world knows David and Goliath. Whenever you see someone smaller in stature going against something much larger or in their opponent, the description of the match or fight would be labeled David and Goliath. So most of us in here are at least familiar with the outward uh, veneer of the story. But as we continue through this amazing book, and as we come to our text that that the public is most familiar with, I want us to take a closer look. That's the title of the message today in your notes, a closer look. Now, let's just review the content just so that we're familiar and make sure that everybody's on the same page. Because in 20 years of preaching, if there's one thing that I know about America, there is some people who've just never heard the story. 
they're familiar with the phrase and maybe with the fact of David and Goliath and something about a giant, something about a sling and a stone. But there are other parts of the message that they may not be familiar with. For instance, David is the youngest son of Jesse. Uh, he's the youngest of seven other brothers, of eight brothers. And he was simply doing what his dad told him to do while the oldest three uh, uh, went off to battle. Uh, Eliab was the oldest. He and his next two brothers went off. And his dad simply said, look, I'm going to take you from the sheepfold. I want you to take some supplies to your brother. And I want you to take some money. If they've had to auction anything in order to buy supplies, I want you to redeem that. I want you to get that stuff back. I want you to give you them supplies. And I want you to see how the battle's going. Not for David's sake, but for a dad's sake. How many understand if a dad sends boys off to war, he wants to know their state. He wants to know their condition, right? So he sends them off. Now his father sends him uh, to do all this. And as he goes to deliver the vittles, as he goes to deliver the supplies, he notices two things. One, that all of Israel is fearful. And he notices that the source or the object of their fear is sitting down in a valley and it's one guy. And this guy has a mouth on him that's running like a sewer. He's just simply running and running his mouth about how he's going not only to defy Israel, but he invokes the name of the God of Israel. And now David is taking offense. He notices a few things. By the way, in that valley, you can see, uh, you could see both armies and you could see very clearly where the giant would have stood. By the way, it wouldn't be hard to miss. He's some say about 10 feet tall. Uh, they estimate that the armor alone that he was wearing on his body was about 150 pounds. That's not including his spear or his shield. And so here's a large man standing out in the middle of this valley with a big booming voice. And he's defying God. And David sees all of this. By the way, this one individual is dictating the demands of war. He's the one that's saying, listen, you send one out to me. And if he wins, we'll be your servants. If we win, you'll be our servants. So the enemy's dictating the battle. David takes all of this in. From there, all of us could almost fill in the rest of the blanks. David runs down the hill. The Bible says that he takes five smooth stones from a brook. He takes a sling and he takes one stone and hurls it. And by the power of God, it smotes Goliath right in the forehead and he falls straight down on his face. He doesn't have a sword. David didn't bring a sword. He brought a sling, some stones and a staff. So he climbs up on top of the, of the giant. This is where it gets good. He climbs up on top of the giant, takes the sword of Goliath and he ha ha. Chops his head off. And then as he does that, everybody that's in the caves goes, hey, we're winning. Let's join the fight. And they all jump down and they pursue the armies of the Philistines. They take off. David scores a great victory for the Lord and the people of God. Now, that's everything on the outward. That's everything of the details of the story. There are several things that make this story even more interesting. For instance, at this point, we already know that David is a man who's in pursuit of the heart of God. He wasn't looking for a fight. He wasn't looking to make a name of himself. He was just looking to obey his daddy. And so by doing only those things, he's put into the midst of a situation that he wasn't planning on. By the way, thank God that David had a heart for God. Thank God that he was pursuing a stronger relationship with God. We also are aware that God has not only taken his spirit from Saul... And he has also taken the kingdom away from Saul, but he's also given them both to David. The Bible says the spirit of the Lord departed from David and or, uh, from Saul in one verse. The previous verse says the spirit of God rested upon David from that day forward. We know that this would be a day that all Israel would never forget. In fact, they'll be writing songs about it very shortly. Right in the next chapter and a half, you're going to find that they wrote songs about David's victory and all that David had done, not only to honor God, but to preserve Israel. All of that takes place. Now, just like any other portion of the Bible, it's when we slow down and take a closer look that we gain more of the wisdom of God. In other words, when we truly study scripture, we begin to understand how the details of a story pertain to us living today. A lot of people read the Bible and they go, eh, yeah, I don't see its relevance. It's talking about this. It's talking about that. Instead of slowing down and saying, wait a minute, David was a real guy just like I am. And Goliath was a real problem to the people of God. And we've all had our problems. The Goliath was a very personal problem. And by the power of God, David brought down the problem. The fact remains that none of us are probably ever going to be standing face to face with a 10 foot giant who's threatening our well-being or our families. But truth be told, 
if we haven't already, more than likely, we will face a circumstance that's bigger than us. We will face a situation that is larger than we are. Many of us will come to a place in our lives when we face perhaps a moral position or a spiritual decision that no one else is willing to make or take or stand up for. That's huge. That's when you and I have to realize that this story is not about how great David is, although he was a wonderful man of God. This story is about how great our God is. (laughs) This story is about how great the victory of our God is when he is the sole object of our faith. Deuteronomy 7, 21. God said, thou shalt not be affrighted at them for the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. God's word is still true, amen? God's word still stands. God's word doesn't change because God doesn't change. And so the truth of the story is one thing, but when you take a closer look, the object of that story is the greatest thing, and that object is God. So I I believe when we take a closer look at this text this morning, we're going to see two distinct factors of faith. We're going to see, first of all, the enemies of faith, and we're going to talk about the encouragement of faith. And I want to just talk through these here with you. First of all, I want you to take your outlines and notice with me, number one, the enemies of faith. Now, I'm going to go back through a little bit of the story and just kind of highlight some things. First of all, remember the perceived danger, the perceived danger. One of the things that jumps right off the page is the fact that one man's, uh, one man's presence and voice was enough to cause the entire army of Israel, including Saul, to be put into the state of despair. Go back and look at verses 10 and 11, if you will, in the same chapter. The Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Listen, when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. And notice what it says. And greatly what? Afraid. This one man was able to do all that. Now that phrase, dismayed and phrase, it literally means this. They were shattered and broken. Have you ever been shattered by fear? Have you ever had fear? Have you ever been scared so bad you just couldn't do anything? We played an awful trick on, my, on Austin, one of my sons, uh, when he was about 10 or 11 years old. I've tried to duplicate it many times. My other kids didn't work. But um, Austin was taking a shower, and he was always one of those kids who had to have the lights on everywhere in the house. So when he got out, there was light. It wasn't dark, okay? I I know that feeling because I was always afraid of the dark. Still kind of am a little bit. But so what I decided to do was I decided to turn off all of the lights, including the lights where we were in the other room. And when he came out, it was going to be pitch black. Well, Austin, if you know Austin, he's kind of got a personality. He's a little hyper. And so he's getting all ready, got his jammies on, getting ready to shut the light off. And he comes out from lightness into dark. He turns the light off thinking that all the other lights are on and they were all off. And it was pitch black. He didn't realize it until he got about 10 feet around the corner and he saw the whole house was black. That poor kid shrieked and melted right there against the wall. You heard him. Boom. He hit the wall. He went straight to the ground, started screaming. And of course, what did we do? We laughed. It was awesome. It was one of the greatest pranks we've ever pulled. But that's what it literally means. He was completely, could we say it this way? This way, paralyzed by fear. He couldn't take another step. That's the idea here. The idea is that they were completely broken in a state of despair. They were terrified. They were crippled with fear. They tell me that danger is exposure to a liability to injury or pain or harm. Now, that's what every single person in the army of Israel was thinking. I can't go out and do that. But they were saying something greater. We can't go out there and do that. There's one guy down there and we're all afraid of him. Here's the problem. Like their predecessors, all they saw through the eyes of fear was the size of the enemy. All they saw was the size of the problem, and they were blind to the size of their God. They were blind to how big God is. They were deaf to the promises of God. The fact that all Israel, by the way, was in the state of fear reminds us of of an important truth that most Christians are fearful when it comes to the commitment to the will of God. Most Christians won't follow Christ. They won't sacrifice their life because of fear. What am I going to have to give up in order to serve God? What am I going to have to give up in order to seek the righteousness of God? We talked about that in, in our, our Bible study this morning. And, and, and what will they, what will they not do because of fear? Let me ask you this. What will you not do this year because of fear? Let me ask you a little more personal. What aren't you doing because of fear? There are Christians who won't simply obey the word of God 
because they don't know if they can trust God with their life. They don't know if they can actually believe that God is greater than this circumstance. God, let me say this, is greater than your circumstance. He is always greater than your circumstance. The problem is, do we believe it? Fear keeps any Christian from the truth. And that is that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We see the perceived danger. Secondly, we see personal doubt. Verses 22 through 27, all the men of Israel could say all along the front line was, listen, uh, there's a problem out there. His name is Goliath. And and, and they only had one thought. They only had one thought. Listen, I'm not going to do it, but whoever goes out there, they're going to get Saul's daughter. They're going to get rich. They don't have to pay taxes. And he turns around and he asks the question. The indication is over and over. And they just keep the same mantra. Well, I'm not going. The idea is, but they say over and over, the individual that does go. Now, don't ask me because I'm not going. That was already apparent in the text. Whoever does go, that's going to happen to them. Is there not a cause? I'm just saying it's not me. Whoever does go, and this goes down the line. Look, somewhat it's somewhat weird to think that no one thought, well, why don't we just all run down there? Isn't it weird? Here's the armies of Israel. In fact, if you go back in the text and you try to sum up how many people, it's over 300,000 armed for war. And one guy down in the valley. Certainly, don't you think there would be somebody that says, hey, look, like probably a good 150, maybe 500 of us that can run down there faster than they can. We can not only take this guy out, break their backbone, and we can just run them off of this property. But nobody thought that. They were completely crippled. There were there was personal doubt in every one of them. Let me just say this. Doubt's pretty contagious, isn't it? You get one person to doubt, and you start speaking the doubt to somebody else, the next thing you know, it's a wildfire of doubt. Doubt, doubt, doubt. Worry, worry, worry. Doubt's contagious and kills our faith. The longer we're faced with a problem, the larger it can grow, and the more we can't see around it. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been faced with a circumstance and and it's so wide we can't see around it it's so tall we can't see over it and we begin to doubt sometimes we doubt this god do you see what's going on can you not see that this is not appealing to me i don't even know how to get around this i don't know how to deal with this god says if we're listening that's okay i do i'm on i'm already on the other side i'm able to do exceedingly abundantly above whatsoever you ever ask or you possibly think Do you trust me with it? The fact remains, David was standing in the middle of the fearful and the doubting, wondering why no one else was willing to go forward by faith. Let me give you another enemy of faith. Letter C is persuaded discouragement. Persuaded discouragement. Verse 28 talks about his brother, Eliab. Please remember that Eliab and David's brothers who were there knew that God's hand was on David. They knew it. They knew it. They were there when David was anointed by Samuel. We preached about that. When he was anointed by Samuel to be the next king. So they knew that. Now, what does that mean? Well, to me, knowing that the spirit of God was on him, knowing that he was anointed by Samuel, to me, it's very apparent that there was some raging jealousy going through Eliab's body. Well, you're going to be the next king anyway. Now you're going to come down here and you just want to be world renowned. It's all about you, David. That that tells me. personally, listen, that tells me it was really all about Eliab. I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. You know, it's easy when you have pride and naughtiness in your heart to to think that you know the pride and naughtiness in someone else's heart. That was Eliab's fault, was that he was the oldest. He had everything getting ready to hand it to him, and instead it's handed all to David. Now you want to be the hero too? I wanted to be the hero. It's like throwing a grown-up fit. I, I want to get to heaven and go, Eliab, can you just tell me really what you were thinking? Because I think I know what you're thinking because I thought of it. And if you were thinking what I was thinking, then you were wrong and I was wrong too. And I'm so glad that David got the giant and you didn't. <laughs> Eliab was wrong, but he was persuaded. He was fully persuaded. Why? Because his little brother shows up in the middle of Eliab's friends and starts saying, who's going to shut this guy's mouth? Who is going to stand up for God? Is our God not worth the fight of faith? And when someone who is more spiritual than me stands up for the good fight of faith and starts saying what God can do and what God will do, and I'm not the one that thought it, I kind of have a problem with that. 
And my problem is never with me. It's always with them. Have you ever met somebody more spiritual than you? And just because of that fact, you didn't like them. I've met plenty of people. I've met plenty of people who are far more encouraging than I ever am. They have way more mercy. And I get around them and I just don't like them. What's wrong with them? I don't know, just something about them I don't like. And then I'll confess to my wife before we go to bed. That guy drives me crazy. Why? Because he's more of a blessing than I am. (laughs) He encourages people all the time and I have a hard time doing that. He's merciful to anything that breathes and I have a hard time with mercy. I have a hard time with compassion. What am I saying? I'm carnal and he's spiritual. That's what Eliab was confessing without even confessing. Persuaded discouragement. Let me ask you a question. Wouldn't your, if your family member that you looked up to tried to discourage you from doing what God was putting in your heart, would that be a help or a burden? Boy, it'd be awful, wouldn't it? To have to fight through that discouragement at times when a Christian takes a stand for the Lord, or perhaps they begin to become very close with God, the devil is keen enough to have someone very close ready with their discouragement. He's always, Why? That's why the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary. The devil is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And many times, listen, many times before you get devoured, it begins with discouragement. If he can get us discouraged, think about this. What if Eliab was, was so powerful and influential in David's life that David said, you know what? Here's your food. I'm leaving. And he left. That story of faith and the story of God smiting the giants, not in the Bible. There's no application. David never gets to do what God had him to do because he was discouraged. And who did that? Family. People who were blood kin. People who were near and dear to that family said, no, you don't have a right motive. You can't do this. And he leaves. Persuaded discouragement. Eliab was so sure that David wanted to fight because of pride to advance his own agenda. Eliab just knew that David's heart was not for God, even though nothing could be more from the truth. Persuaded discouragement. Well, that's an enemy of faith. Number four, letter B, public decline is an enemy of faith. Public decline. Look at verse 37 in our text. The latter part of verse 37. Well, let's just read the verse. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw and out of the lion, uh, delivered me out of the paw and the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. What did Saul say? Saul said unto David, then you go and the Lord be with you. Isn't that interesting? Not even Saul could be interested enough in the fight. He simply abandons David to go by himself. Well, if it's all the same to you, David, then you go ahead with your faith. I'll be in the rear with the gear. By the way, kings said that day are not supposed to be in the rear with the gear. They're supposed to be leading the, herd, leading the herd. You go. What is that? Public decline. At this point, recognize that no one but David was willing to do anything for God. Nobody was willing to do anything for God. One of the strongest enemies of faith is the public decline away from the commitment to Jesus Christ. That's one of the strongest enemies of faith today. Being steadfast, being immovable, always abounding in the things of God has never been popular, especially when things get serious. In John chapter 6 and verse 66, Jesus turned around and, 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 and 65, all, the Bible says from that time forth, the Bible says that or in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And it was so disturbing. He turned to the disciples and said, well, will you go away also? When Jesus got serious about commitment, all of a sudden the multitudes just came to a few. Why? Because doing something by faith for the commitment of Jesus Christ has never been popular. The Bible says in Matthew 13 and verse 15 about the day we live in, for this people's heart is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes they've closed. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itchy ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. People are departing from the faith today. People are walking away on their own path. People are living in fear rather than faith. They're living in doubt. People are discouraged. And that decline and all of those things is an enemy to your faith. It's an enemy to my faith. That's the reality of the passage. 
These are the enemies of faith today like they were in David's day. They war against God's people on a very personal level. And they keep us from the victories in our marriages that we so need. They keep us from the victories in our children's lives. They keep us from the battle for souls. They keep us from the unity of the brethren. All of it is an enemy of fear. doesn't matter which one you pick. Just pick one. And that's enough mostly to stop half of us. Just one. Praise God, the story doesn't die on the hillside. It doesn't die on the hillside overlooking the valley of Elah. Goliath dies like all giants should die, headless. And by the hands of faith in a great and mighty God. Let me give you briefly this morning the encouragements of faith. The encouragements of faith. Now remember... The great hall of faith chapter in the Bible is Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 6 tells us, without faith it's impossible to please him. The Bible says, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, that goes through this huge, wonderful list of witnesses. And God records these great victories and great, really, most of them are just obediences to faith. But then down in verse 32, the Bible says, what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah. And then it says of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness. Listen to this phrase, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quitted the uh, the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Listen to this. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. So you have in one phrase obtained promises, and then you have out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight. Now I want you to understand something about the Christian life. It's a fight. It is a fight of faith. It is a battle. Every single day that you wake up, you have a real enemy that lives inside of you. You have a real enemy that lives in this earth. You have the spirit of the age that is fighting against you. All of that is a real world fight. And it's called the fight of faith. And you and I are going to live and die. We are going to fight and win or lose based, based on our faith, based on the object of faith, based on the exercise of our faith. So when Paul writes these words to Timothy, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course with joy. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day. But listen, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. God, if I'm reading that right, says, listen, Paul has fought the good fight of faith, but you can too. You don't have to die in the valley. Or better, you don't have to die on the mountainside watching the giants dictate to you how you're going to live your life. You can live by faith. By the way, since you brought it up, the just shall live by faith. What have we really done by faith? That we're, it's interesting. There's a lot that we think that we are doing all by faith. And we actually think in our minds that we warrant when we get to heaven that God says, good on you. Well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Have you warranted that? When God sees your life, does he see a fight of faith victoriously? Or have you been discouraged because there's a lot of enemies out there? What an encouragement to know that our God is still thrilled by our faith. (laughs) That it pleases him. What an encouragement to know that our God will surely reward those who diligently seek his help and reward. David, David's God is our God. Do you understand that this morning? This isn't some figment of an imagination. This is the reality of the almighty God. David's God is our God this morning. David's faith can be our faith. The decision, though, is ours to make. Now, let's look at some elements of David's faith to compare it to ours. First of all, Victorious faith focuses on God's honor. David didn't get there and he wasn't enamored with Goliath. He was enamored with one thing. Is there not a cause? And he said it over 
and over and over again. He was derided for it, but he was he said, listen, I'm not going to focus on Goliath. I'm going to focus on the God of heaven, the God of the armies of Israel. And he makes that statement when he goes down and says, in the name of the God of the armies of Israel, I defy you this day. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to chop you up. I'm going to feed you to the fowls of the air. And we're going to destroy your army. That's what David did. How did he do it? By faith. Why? Because he was more interested in the honor of God than the enemy. David was so anxious to prove that God was faithful and believe that God was worthy of a life that honors him that he ran to the giant. That's where we can go wrong is that we don't normally make it a habit to think about honoring God above all else. David said, no, that's my first and foremost thing. Is there not a cause here? Are we seeking to please him above all others? No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. First Peter chapter one and verse seven says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise, get it, and honor and glory at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I, it, 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 true faith is gonna focus on the honor of God. Do I wanna honor God above all else? Do you want to honor God with all, above all else? Is that the object of your life? Or am I wanting to honor self? Because that's where most of us live. And that's where we all go wrong. Victorious faith seeks to honor and focuses on the honor of God. Let it be. Faith concentrates on the promises of God. Now look down, if you will, in verse 45 of 1 Samuel 17. The Bible says, then said, then said David to the Philistine, thou comest to me with a sword. I love this passage of scripture. I would lo- I, I can't wait to get to heaven and, and just like, God, can you just put a video screen up there? I want to see actually what it looks like when David is running and when David says these. I want to hear the volume. Lord, turn the surround sound all the way up. I want to get every fiber of David's soul in this. I really want to know what it looks like because when I read it, I just go bananas. Uh, then said, verse 45, David to the Philistine, thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast divided. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hands. I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of Philistine this day into the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and all the assembly shall know that the Lord saveth, not with sword or spear for the battle is the lord's and he will give you into our hands now can i just ask you a question well let me let me not say the question did you know it, you could look at the the previous 16 chapters of first samuel and you will never find that statement promised to david did you know that you won't find it there you won't find that somewhere in there it says that you know jesse sat down with all of his sons and said now here's Here's what we, it doesn't say that at all, but it happened. Somewhere along the line, David was very familiar with this passage, Deuteronomy 1, whither shall you go? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people is greater and taller than we. The cities are greater and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims here. By the way, those are giants. Moses says, then said I unto you, dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in egypt before your eyes what did he get the promise of god that as i go forth and i seek to trust god that he's going to deliver why because he's god and that he's not a man that he should lie neither the son of man that he should repent hath he not said will he not make it good god's promises are real now let me ask you which one are you claiming Which one are you standing on today? Standing on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages let his praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God. And we sing the chorus. And we sing it like it's, you know, like it's just paint on the walls. To David, it was not a theory. The promises of God were the promises of God. They were true. If Moses said it to the people of Israel and David knew that the only reason he was he was able to dwell in the kingdom of Canaan was because God kept his promises, then they were good enough for David to slay this giant. Now, let me ask you, is God's promises good enough for you? Are God's promises good enough for you? Because in order to claim them, my friend, you're going to have to live by faith.
which means you have you may have a huge giant standing in front of you and well, I just can't get over this and I can't believe this and well this is too bad I, you know why is this happening to me in order to have that promise you got to get in the fight you got to face that giant you got to be willing whatever it is that's necessary in order for God to keep his promises because they are not unconditional they are conditional on one thing, your faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If we spent more time meditating and mulling over God's promises than we do our problems, don't you think our lives would be a little different? The Bible says in Psalm 1, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. That person shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he, he shall do shall prosper. Victorious faith focuses on the honor of God. Victorious faith concentrates on the promises of God. Let us see, faith is proven in private. This is the encouragement of faith. Remember in verses 33, or verses 33 through 37, we see this. How was David so confident while facing and running down Goliath? Because he had already done it to a bear and a lion. Now, let me ask you this. When he killed the lion and the bear, was that in public or private? It was what? It was private. While he did what? While he kept the sheep. While he was doing what he was told to do, right? That's what the youngest was done. So while he was obeying the authority over him and doing what God wanted him to do, there arose circumstances that prepared him for a day that he wasn't aware of. But he did it in private. Nowhere in the Bible does David say that he came home and said, Hey, look at this big hair bed, a bear hair that I have, a bear head that I have today. Look at this lion. I grabbed him by the thing and whoop, cut his hair off. Look at all that. He didn't do that. Why? He was doing those things out of necessity to keep the flock. He was charged with the responsibility of the flock. And while he was doing that, God said, I have I got a job for you. And he took him up to the fight, all because he was willing to obey his daddy. And the next thing you know, that faith that he had in private became something very public. Really, your private life is the most important part of your life. Did you know that? Your private life. Let me say it this way. Your private life with God is the most important part of your life. It's what changes everything else in your life. Your private life with God is the proving ground of your faith. Are you praying for things that nobody else knows about except you and God? You should be. Because that's your proving ground of faith. Or are you like most people and you just put it all, your entire life out there for public, and it's all about proving that your life has made all the right decisions? See, that's the problem with social media. Social media has become a realm where people live for the honor of themselves instead of the honor of God. David's faith was proved in private. What are you praying for in private? How much time do you spend with God on a regular basis? Read the Psalms. David bathed himself with fellowship with God. Let me give you a last one. That faith in private, letter D, becomes very powerful in public. Faith is powerful in public. Commit thy way unto the Lord, the Bible says, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass, and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday. Now, it's very interesting to me that when you read the Bible, it's amazing how many times private faith is proven very powerful in public. Jacob and Esau, everybody wake up. Jacob and Esau, were what, how were they related? They were, they're what? Brothers, okay. Did Jacob and Esau have a great relationship? Okay, were they lovey-dovey? Did they have, let's come spend the night with your kids and my kids? No, the Bible says that they hated each other. In fact, so much that Esau wanted to murder Jacob. His mama said, huh, your brother's hot in the trail. You need to get out of here because Jacob or Esau is going to kill you. So he runs, right? He takes off. Well, guess what happened? Between that meeting and the next meeting, Jacob had a meeting with God. Jacob wrestled with God. And it was so powerful. And he begged God so much for his help and blessing that the next time he met Esau, it changed Esau's life. Esau met him. Read the story. It's one of the greatest stories in all the Bible. Esau came, the Bible says, and fell down and kissed his brother. And they had an amazing reunion. How was that possible? 
because Jacob, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, leaned on his staff. What is that? That's a picture of him wrestling with God and him becoming halt in his hip. By private faith, his faith became very powerful in public, so much that Esau's heart was changed. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Three Hebrew boys. You need to bow. This is the government mandate. You need to pray to this altar. And they said, yeah, we're not doing that. And they said, well, we're not going to throw you in the fire. We're going to give you one more try. Yeah, we're still not doing it. If God wants to deliver us, great. If he doesn't, great. Then we'll die. But we're, not, we're only going to trust God. So they threw him in the fire. When they came out, the king said, I'm convinced. Your God's the God of God's. Wait a minute. Private faith, before they ever got to that point, became very powerful in public. They had proved God already. Daniel is the same story. Daniel proved his faith in the presence of kings all over the place. What about a little servant's girl that said, hey, I know that there's a prophet in Israel. And I know that if master Naaman goes there, that he'll be healed. So Naaman goes. And what happens? By that little girl's faith, Naaman's life has changed. We could go on and on. Paul was beaten and bruised and whipped and left for dead. He was stoned to death for dead. And he finds himself in the middle of a storm. And everybody wants to jump the ship. And Paul stands and said, for I believe God. And the centurion cuts the ropes. Nobody jumps over. Everyone's saved. Why? Because of a Pharisee that turned into a child of the living God, sat in a prison and prayed. And God shook the doors of the prison open. So much so that by, it was time, by the time it was uh, for him to stand in the middle of a storm, his faith was proven. And now in public, it was very powerful. The Lord Jesus Christ put his life into the hands of God the Father. And the Bible says he laid down his life on the cross. The Bible says that he learned obedience through the cross. And what did he say on the cross? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Well, what did that faith do? It changed all of our lives for all of eternity. When you take a closer look at this famous story, it looks a little different. But I want to ask you this morning, when you take a closer look at your faith, what does it look like? Is your life dictated by circumstance, problems, tribulation? Or is it determined by faith? Because remember, Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. And then he promised, in the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Then in 1 John chapter 5, the Bible says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When you take a closer look, it changes. Can I encourage you this morning with one final thing? Don't let the world define what kind of life you're going to live. Don't let circumstances define you, especially your faith, or how you're going to fight the battles. Don't, don't let your circumstances, well, if they're going to do this, then I'm, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Let faith define it. Let, let the word of God do that. And when people take a closer, uh, closer look at your faith, it's going to affect theirs. Let's bow our head and close our eyes this morning. This invitation, I just want to ask this morning, that God would help us. Father, I, I pray now that as we do business with you after the word of God has been preached, that, Lord, that you would have your way with us. Lord, I think we could confess with one voice that we don't love you like we should. We, we don't trust you like we should. And, uh, God, we, we live in a time at the end of this age of grace that really is in need of Christians living a life of faith. And I wonder this morning, Lord, if you've spoken, if you would be so gracious and merciful that you would help us. Help us in our weak faith. Help us as we face a difficulty in our life. We ask for wisdom, but Lord, as we take your wisdom from your word, we realize without the faith of a child, that it's, really, it's not going to matter much. We really need to trust you. And I pray, God, today that people sitting here would realize how great you are, how wonderful it is to be able to trust you, how freeing it must have been for David that day, regardless of all the enemies that were against him, that he could encourage himself in the Lord. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, I wonder, maybe you're here and you say, Pastor Haynes, I, I'm, I'm facing a difficulty in my life, and it's a big one.
And I, I have not surrendered that difficulty to the Lord. I, I, I've not been handling it by faith in Christ. I've been looking at it, letting it dictate how I respond. I've, I've let the world define my faith. And, and I want to have that childlike faith again. I want the faith that's victorious faith. I need to approach this circumstance in my life in a different way. I'm facing something this morning, and, and I'd like you to pray for me during this invitation. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand real quick? Anybody like that? I see that hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? Maybe you'd say, Pastor, I don't, maybe your decision this morning is, I, I do not want my coworkers or my family or anybody else to define my life of faith my decision this morning is that I want God and his word to define my faith. Would you pray for me during this invitation? If that's you, would you just slip up your hand? Anybody like that? All over the building. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I do not know for sure if I died today I'd be in heaven, but I'd like to know. I'd like to know what it means today to be saved by the grace of God. You mentioned it. I wonder today if that's you and you say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure that my sins are gone. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Pray for me. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand real quick? Can I just pray for you right where you are? I won't come to you. I, I will not bother you. I will not certainly embarrass you. Pastor, pray for me. Just slip up your hand real quick. Anybody like that? All right, in a moment, we're going to stand. I'm going to pray. Jenna's going to begin to play the piano. When she does, I wonder if you'll just take some time this morning, go back through, ask the Lord where your faith is, and recommit yourself to trusting God. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit now would... <laughs> would help. Lord, the paraclete is the come beside, is the comforter. Lord, sometimes sometimes we can be in fearful, not knowing what's next, not knowing how to navigate this life, not knowing the decisions that we need to make. And we, we need you. God, I pray today that you'd be with these that raised their hand that said they're facing a situation, a difficulty, a giant, so to speak. And they needed to be reminded today that that giant doesn't need to dictate their faith, but that the word of God would. Remind them of your promises. Remind them of your goodness. Remind them of your grace. Remind them of the power that goes beyond, exceedingly above and beyond whatsoever we could ever ask or think. Encourage them today. I pray for all the others, Lord, the many that raise their hands, that their faith needs to be defined by the word of God. I pray, God, that you'd help them today, bolster their faith, Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to be reminded all over again, Lord, that this, this battle, when we take a closer look, is revealing the power of our God in the life of one human being that is solely, solely committed to you. Lord, would you fight our battles? Would you help us to receive the victory because you go before us? The battle is the Lord's. God, it's ours just to simply act and respond by faith. Help us to do that. Please minister to our hearts today. Bless us, dismiss us with your grace. Help us this week to live by faith. Help us to trust you more. I pray that our families would sense the presence of God. I pray that our decisions would be in honor of the Most High King. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.